Welcome to Health 4.0 Leadership Podcast. My name is Namrata Bagaria, and I'm your host. My guest today is Alan Kanerva. He is the co-founder of Inspired Outcomes. Welcome, Alan. Hey, welcome. Thank you very much for inviting me onto your show. My pleasure. So, Alan, as you know, this podcast is for Health 4.0 Leadership Institute, which aims to create and build leadership and capacity for Health 4.0 ecosystem. So can you explain to us where are you contributing in the present ecosystem of health and in what capacity, what are your top three mandates? Yeah, absolutely. That's a really good question. So as an NLP training and uh, coaching institute, we're sort of uh, up to very recently, we're sort of seen as a pseudoscience. Practitioners of NLP were seen as a pseudoscience, but, but recently um, the legislation in Ontario changed, and we're now part of the College of Registered Psychotherapists under somatic treatments. And so as an NLP trainer, we've, been, we've known that the human capacity to deal with things, specifically health-related issues that are emotionally driven, is profound. And so through NLP, we really help people uh, be in the best emotional condition they can be. And the body of knowledge that's growing, that's connecting our emotional states to our physical dis-ease is immense. And so uh, Health 4.0, the next generation of health, I think we have to go back a little bit and start taking responsibility for our health rather than deferring our health to the health system. Mm -hmm. Science has done an amazing job at creating this system around us. But in the process, so many people have let go of their capacity to heal their capacity to be self-determining in their health to the system. And I think what we do in NLP is help people reconnect to some of their self-determination. And my particular interest where I'm really focused on is trauma and specifically overcoming trauma. And, um, you know, if I have three mandates, specific mandates, it's one that I don't just deal with PTSD. Mm -hmm. The disorder serves, my, my opinion is that the disorder, the word disorder serves the person doing the diagnosis more than the person receiving the diagnosis. Mm -hmm. You know, if a, if a psychologist or psychiatrist or doctor does a diagnosis that a person has PTSD, mm -hmm. they then know the next steps to do within mm -hmm. their system. Mm -hmm. But if you don't have a diagnosis of PTSD and you still feel you're impacted by a previous life trauma, Mm -hmm. To me, that's just as legitimate as a diagnosis of PTSD. Mm -hmm. And that's so very important to me. So the D is one of my primary mandates. Now with veterans, with police officers, uh, veterans, military people are very clear about this. They go on deployment before they leave, they're okay. Mentally, they're okay. And they go on deployment and then they come back and they're broken. And, and they see it as an injury, the same as a broken leg, a broken arm, uh, a wound. So they, they believe they're injured. They don't believe they have a disorder, right? So that's a, an important distinction. And there's a big movement. There's a massive movement to change the, the, the language around trauma to call it a post-traumatic stress injury. And just when you do that, knowing how the human psychology works, just when you go from disorder to injury, it changes how we neurologically associate to that issue. And we, you know, in our practice, I like to say that it's your brain's perfect reaction to an abnormal situation. Mm -hmm. So my first mandate is to change the language around the disorder. Mm -hmm. The second mandate is to 
get the message out that post-traumatic stress is an injury that can heal. Mm -hmm. Because right now the pervasive thought seems to be that it's difficult, if not impossible, to overcome and that you better learn to cope. Mm -hmm. And we see support groups uh, showing up. We see all sorts of industry building around helping people cope for the rest of their life with trauma. And the most recent research says that is not true. That trauma is an injury that can be overcome, both uh, episodal trauma and complex post-traumatic stress. Mm -hmm. And then my third mandate, personal mandate, is to train 10,000 clinicians mm -hmm. in this protocol that's now been researched to have over a 92% success rate with almost no recurrence up to a year out. Mm -hmm. And this is at least two to 250% better than any other methodology that's been researched to date. So those three mandates, change the language, and changing the language will remove the stigmatization. Um, to get the message out that you can heal from PTSD, and that that's very, very effective, very fast. And third, we need a lot of practitioners knowing how to do this. So I'm on a, I'm on a big journey, if you will. Wow. So Alan, that you have such big mandates, you must have had big challenges too. So I would like to know what were your challenges, if you can share maybe your top three learnings with us and how are you using it to proceed further? Yeah, you ask really good questions. You know, I've had the good fortunes of working with people who have done a lot more that have been out at the edge way more than me. So when I talk about my own experience, I have to be careful because the people that I've worked with who I know, I literally call them superheroes. Mm -hmm. They're heroes and they're heroic because of the things they've done and the experiences they faced. Mm -hmm. They're heroic because they've challenged post-traumatic stress and overcome it. And they're heroic because they're prepared to share their story with the world. Mm -hmm. So what I'm about to say about my own life in no way takes away from their hero hero heroism. Um, you know, I spent a decade in the military, the Canadian armed forces flying military helicopters mm -hmm. uh, domestically and abroad and, and in, in the, in the deployment I did to the Middle East in 1990, I saw some things that were shocking, if not traumatizing. Mm -hmm. When I came home from that deployment, I didn't feel right. Mm -hmm. And uh, back in 1990, we didn't talk about post-traumatic stress. Mm -hmm. I mean, not if you wanted to keep your career, not if you want to keep flying. Mm -hmm. Shortly after I came home from uh, the Middle East, I studied NLP for the first time. So I've been a student and, and, and a practitioner of NLP since 1990. And uh, in 1992, my, my first wife and I, Leslie and I, um, lost our, our first son to a hypoplastic left ventricle. Now, losing your son could be deemed as traumatic. For a lot of people, it could be a traumatizing situation. And, and, we, and we worked through that. Um, and to a large extent, I did. I worked through my stuff around it using NLP. And then um, I spent about 15 years in business, give or take. And then later in life, uh, I'll turn 65 in a couple of weeks here, or less than that, 10 days. And um, so later in life at 48, 49 years old, I decided to, to change careers and I decided to be in the humanitarian field. And I did a master's degree and the people on my course were nothing short of amazing. And then I went into the field and, and worked for about a decade out in the field doing humanitarian work. And, and fortunately and unfortunately, Namrata, I got to see the very best of the human condition and the very worst. Mm -hmm. 
Mm. You know, you, no, I know I you relate to that. I can relate to that. So. Yeah, I know you've traveled extensively, and 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 you know some of the countries you've gone to work in are similar, if not the same, than the place I've been. So that journey took me into Iraq in 2004, and um, and uh, in a crazy time, and it took me into Sudan in 2005, into northern Sudan. I actually got to interview some a very senior military officer who was chasing the Lord's Resistance Army. I got to interview one of Joseph Coney, the head of the Lord's Resistance Army's top lieutenants as he came in, mm-hmm. as he surrendered himself, and uh, and got to witness people living in internally displaced persons camps, IDP camps, um, literally for 20, 30 years. Mm-hmm. I got to witness uh, what are what sleeping shelters where, where children, because they were at risk of being kidnapped at night, mm-hmm. So if they stayed with their family, but they put their family at risk. So the family would send them five or 10 kilometers away to sleep in these mass shelters mm-hmm. with hundreds of other children. And I witnessed that. And I tried to imagine coming back to Canada, having to send my, in 2005, my daughter was eight. So having to send my eight-year-old daughter by herself to walk five or 10 kilometers to a sleeping shelter because it was too too dangerous to have her sleep at home with us. I couldn't wrap my head around that. That's a, that's a moral injury that that's not fathomable. So wherever my journey took me, I, I knew at one point I, I wasn't okay. I, I had the nightmares. My first wife would attest to this. I had what, what you would call hypnagogic or holographic nightmares where I actually had to take action. Mm-hmm. You know, one night I jumped out of bed and dragged my wife down the floor, mm-hmm. you know, in full on dream that I had to escape. Another night we were in a motor home and I was sleeping above the cab of the motor home and I launched myself in the middle of the, my nightmare to escape from the top bunk landing on the floor and nearly breaking my neck. Um, so in that journey, you know, I, I overcame the stuff. And then at this juncture of life, when I, when I um, made the decision just to use NLP to help people overcome trauma, I immersed myself in research and um, I connected with a group out of New York state led by a doctor uh, of psychology, a Cornell professor, who started an organization called Research and Recognition. Mm-hmm. He personally had treated 250 survivors in 9-11 who had been 100 stories and higher with the NLP technique. Mm-hmm. And so he, he's dedicated his life to doing the research. And I was fortunate enough to work with his organization. Mm-hmm. I became their director of training. I wrote their curriculum. I wrote their training. And, in the, and, and I did nine beta trainings for them. I trained over 140 licensed healthcare professionals who have gone on to treat thousands and thousands and thousands of people. Mm-hmm. And uh, so the takeaways from that journey were one, you know, I, I've been there, done that, got a t-shirt. So I actually, yeah. so when I'm in front of the room, you know, it's horrible to say, but I've been a military officer and, and witnessed some stuff. I've had some personal loss and I've, I've been a humanitarian worker and seen some atrocious stuff. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and, I, and, and so when I sit and I hold space for a person or when I'm training others, I know that they don't have to suffer anymore. Mm-hmm. And uh, be, you know, research and rec- recognition continues to do phenomenal research. Mm-hmm. And, um, and that supports what we do. Now, in my practice, we have hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of anecdotal stories. And it's when you're one-on-one with a person, mm-hmm. you know, some of the profound stories, like one of my clients had chronic hives as a result of his trauma so bad he was taking 500 milligrams of Benadryl a day mm-hmm. just to breathe. Mm-hmm. They were in his smooth muscle tissue in his airways. Mm-hmm. And to see him get back to his health and, and get back to his career as a paramedic, 
that that's inspiring. Yeah. I had another client, a U.S. Marine, a 42-year-old man, hadn't slept for six years. And by not sleeping, I mean woken up six, mm-hmm. seven, eight times a night. And he was on the highest dosage of Zoloft in the world, mm-hmm. 350 milligrams a day, 250 milligrams above the therapeutic limit of 200 milligrams a day. Mm-hmm. So I worked with him. He, I like to do live demos. This treatment is so robust and so gentle on, on the client. So he was a part of uh, two trainings. He was a, a, a demo subject for two trainings. So I worked with him twice in front of crowds in February and March of last year. And um, he, at the time I started working with him, he was reclusive on this massive dosage of uh, mm-hmm. Zoloft and suicidal. Mm-hmm. And I can tell you today, four weeks ago, he posted on uh, Facebook a picture of him and his girlfriend in their hands with the wedding bands on them. Mm-hmm. So in a year, and that's the kind of thing, you know, he, he, he was a, a medic in the Marines. So this is a highly qualified, highly trained person. Probably his training was probably a quarter million dollars to get him to that status, mm-hmm. who by virtue of being traumatized, that asset is now part, not part of society. Mm-hmm. It's a risk. It's a burden. To have him sit on the margins like that, I can make a case for him. I can make a case for his community. I can make a case for the military if he was still in. I can make a case for the economy for overcoming trauma. I can make these cases. And so, you know, how am I planning to proceed uh, further? So in Canada, I run Inspired Outcomes and I'm building a trauma treatment team. Mm-hmm. And we have a 12-hour protocol that we clear out all the adverse childhood events, the traumas. But then we are, recognize that once you've been living with trauma and adverse childhood events, you have a narrative, a story you tell about your life, your existence, why you are where you are. Mm-hmm. That once you clear the trauma and these adverse childhood events, that narrative is no longer valid. And so we spend a, a four hours helping people to reconnect to their positivity and, uh, and help set their course for the future. Mm-hmm. And in that whole process we use um, a, a test called PSSI-5 from the VA. That's a, we do it pre and post. It's a trauma assessment. So uh, we do that pre and post treatment. We also use a test from Stanford University called the Zimbardo Time Perspective Inventory that measures how people um, code or store negative, past negative, past positive, fatalistic, and hedonistic thought. So we do an evidence-based procedure. And so I'm training clinicians to do our evidence-based procedure. Mm-hmm. And uh, moving forward, we're building a trauma team in Canada. And then in the United States, we have a company called Consanio Group. Mm-hmm. Consanio is Latin for to heal. And, uh, and we're doing the same. And, and we run weekend, you know, once COVID vacation's over, we'll be going back on the road doing our weekend workshops where we share this protocol with the public, with police, firefighters, military, clinicians alike. And it's a beautiful room. Imagine being in a room with the public and clinicians all learning that trauma is an injury that can heal. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, it, it is a journey. It's a mission, uh, you know, and it's, uh, I, I joke, yeah. I'll, I'll be doing this till they turn off the music. <laughs> I think what you said is um, like coming, pulling that to help 4.0, uh, personally, I, I, as you know, I moved to Canada less than three years ago. I've lived with many people in the beginning uh, because I, I couldn't uh, rent a place. So I had to move different Airbnbs. Um, and one of my uh, roommates in that ha- was a veteran who had PTSD. 
and the wait list was so long and the requirements which he had, they didn't have treatment for that. So the vision of Health 4.0 is basically to uh, virtualize services because it's not possible for everyone to travel, especially if they are at risk of uh, you know, harming themselves or something like that, that's one. The second thing, uh, what Health 4.0 also does is use available technologies. Like for example, what you mentioned is a lot of coaching and training and I'm sure there is value of in-class learning and there are certain things which have to be learned in class, but there's also a lot that can be learned online through e-learning modules. And, and with the, uh, every day there's a new way of embracing e-learning and especially that we've seen in COVID, like there's such a huge spike of post uh, COVID trauma that you will see. Yes. Uh, uh, and it wouldn't be, feasible or physically possible to do as many workshops. So in light of connecting what you've done so far with what the vision of Health 4.0 is, how do you think Health 4.0 can help you uh, with this movement towards post, uh, you know, post-traumatic stress injury, given that we are now looking at a very huge number of population which will need these kind of services or coaching skills or life skills, if you will. Yeah, it, 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 it can be, it could appear to be daunting. You're absolutely right. Mm -hmm. um, fortunately, the protocol works very, very well over video conferencing. Mm -hmm. um, I agree with you. Some things need to be learned in person. Yes. And at least, and, and the learning be observed yeah. that the person's competent. And when we're dealing with such um, a sensitive issue as yeah. traumatization, I think that's one of those places. Yeah. That being said, um, we, we teach a lot of what we do online. We're capable of teaching it online. Mm -hmm. and, um, and the actual intervention, the trauma-focused NLP intervention works brilliantly online with the caveat that if you're dealing with somebody who's su suicidal or, or has other issues, um, you have to take precautions when you're on a video link with them that they don't turn off the link, mm -hmm. you know? And so that being the only condition that I've experienced. Now, the other thing is the work we do in NLP is based on a lot of nonverbal communication. So when we're on video conferencing, we do what we call sensory acuity, where we're looking at the person's nonverbal communication. So the change in the skin color, the lip shape, the eye shape, and that always precedes language. So when you ask a question, though, the people light up like billboards long before they verbalize what they're feeling. Mm -hmm. And, mm -hmm. uh, and so you have to up your skill set at sensory acuity over video conferencing. And uh, you have to help the client get the light right. So you can actually see their face. Yeah. A lot yeah. of us, when we video conference, the, the lighting's not perfect, right? Yeah. We're not in studios. We're not under those big white lights. So, you know, in, in moving forward, that is the beauty. So, so right now, before uh, March 14th, I may have had two clients, call it 5% of my clients may have been at any given time over the internet. And now, of course, 100% of my clients are yeah. over the internet. And it's interesting that most of my clients before March 15th were within 200 kilometers of me, 100 kilometers, because mm -hmm. they drive to see us. Mm -hmm. And now, in, in the, since March, April 1st, I have a client in Switzerland, one in England, one in Australia, and one in British Columbia. Yeah, yeah. So the transition has been fairly seamless. Yeah. And, and uh, however, having said that, when we teach it, we're going to have to teach um, uh, some nuances to be online with people to ensure the client's safety. Mm -hmm. That makes sense. 
I think what you said triggers a few thoughts in my head because I bring the technology perspective in this podcast. Given that I have the luxury of <laughs> learning at UOttawa, I'm a PhD candidate, as you know. Um, there's some things that I learned uh, while working in my lab, uh, something called computer vision. So basically, when we do video call right now, uh, you're looking at me, uh, but this same computer thing, they have algorithms where you can see the emotions. Just as looking at the person, you can detect what emotion it is. You can tell the, um, with the face itself, the heart rate, you know, and those kind of, uh, and, and, and the breathing rate. So those kind of researchers are uh, in the testing phase, like the, like my colleagues are doing their master's and PhD in engineering in that. Yes. And there's another thing which I found, which is very important, which is correlating to like what you are doing. I do a lot of uh, online workouts with seniors and people with visual impairment. Yes. Because everybody has to exercise, right? And that keeps me motivated too, because then I'm like, I'm doing it with people, I'm accountable. So one thing I realized is today, the way the video camera is, it's limited in their range. Yep. And I think as the time transitions where now everybody's onboarded to this, there will be much better camera and with moving lights or like already you see like light, uh, uh, add-on features like you yes. know if you see an Instagram they'll show you like a rim things like that but I see those things as very big transitions in sense that there is a huge uh, there'll be a huge demand and the second uh, thing that I'm trying to like as we build this dialogue is not everybody would like to have access and be stationary so these things will also move on to uh, mobile like you know because initially it'll start with a computer or a desktop approach of a like a station that you have at home but I think we will see a lot of trends and all this thing going mobile and how do you safeguard this data in a secure manner how do you store this kind of data because this is a lot of non-verbal cues about someone's mental health status right yeah. and at no point when we are delivering mental health did all I think these these questions at least I have never seen from a research perspective. They've always been like, oh, we were able to talk, we were able to intervene because most of the psychiatrists, the way they operate is okay. Listen to the history. It's not so, I mean, I mean, they do look, but for me, as you're talking, it's giving me ideas that health 4.0 is actually going to remove the person from the burdens of A, travel, and B, the constraint of just mental health is mental health. The whole of you is your health, right? Mm -hmm. And, it, and, it's and, interesting. You, you talk about mental health, but if we talk to firefighters or military people or police, they have to do a physical checkup every year, but they don't do a mental checkup. Yeah. Yeah. It's amazing. Yet, yet the mental drives the body. Yeah. Yeah. Because, you know, I was researching something for sports, like one of my, uh, one of the tasks I was given was to find the parameters of sports fitness. Like how are people certified? Okay, go and yeah. play a sport. Yep. And I don't think I found concrete mental health assessments of athletes. No. Like some, some houses, some clubs do it or like few clubs do it, I guess. But it is known data that your peak performance is all about visualization. It's all about your belief. And, and what you're talking to me is though this is talk, I'm talking about sports, but I can just correlate as the components to do service delivery through technology would be the same that we need to understand which, which provider needs what, what user needs what, yeah, and eventually uh, get them all together. So given that we said all these things, what do you think are the obstacles to adopt 
Health 4.0, which is this virtualized care. I, I think the biggest obstacle, and, and you know, psychologists and psychiatrists will be just scratching their eyes out right now, but really it's the dogma that, mm-hmm. that, that so many professions come with. If you've gone to school for 10 years and you believe in X therapy, you yeah. want to hang on to X therapy and how X therapy has been delivered, right? You're heavily invested. Mm-hmm. And, and I think that the, the challenge is to be open to the possibility. I think, mm-hmm. I think that is the biggest obstacle. And, and I like to tell the story of the two doctors, the two Australian doctors who discovered that uh, 80% of ulcers could be cured with antibiotics. It was in mm-hmm. the early 80s, they discovered that E. pylori was the bacteria that caused most e. pylori. ulcers. Yep. Yeah. And uh, they presented papers in the early 80s and they were literally laughed out of conferences because yeah. they're laughed out of conferences because the Pepto-Bismol industry was a couple billion dollars. And if you had an ulcer, you had it for life yeah. or you had it operated on. You had to go under general anesthesia and, and be operated on. And there was a massive industry at taking out ulcers. These guys come along and say, you know, 80% of ulcers can be cured in seven to 10 days with antibiotics. And it wasn't until 1991 that the CDC actually declared, uh, ident- uh, confirmed or agreed that uh, ulcers were created by bacteria. And it wasn't until about the mid-90s, a full 12 or 13 years later, that treating ulcers with antibiotics became mainstream. And then the, to the kicker, um, in, in 2003, Dr. Warren, who, who actually, to prove his point, self-infected himself and then mm-hmm. cured himself with the antibiotics. Mm-hmm. Um, was given a Nobel Medicine Award a full 23 years after their discovery. So here we are with, and and, you know, um, I'm up against it every day. I'm up again, literally I'm up against it every day where it's too good to be true, it's whatever. Even though the research is there, the rigorous research, including including neuroimaging is available, including millions of, or not millions, but thousands of anecdotal stories plus research. And so I think the obstacle right now is first believing that trauma can be healed, just like ulcers can be healed, that wide adoption. And then the next thing is, is people, we we all get comfortable in what we do, right? So if I've been a clinician and I've got my cozy office, I've got a cozy office, I really do. And then to to move into this more studio-like world. Yeah. Right. And, and, and I will tell you that one of the obstacles is like, I do a lot of training and you and I like classroom training. And I just did a one day training online. And it was, a, I came off the training and I said to my wife, that's the first day of training I've ever come off tired. Cause normally when I'm with people, I get energized. Yes. By the end of the day, I'm up. And, and uh, so training online, I get de-energized. I don't get that human connection, energetic connection, even though we're verbal and visual, I don't get the energy that I do when I have people in a room with me. And uh, one-on-one work, when you're holding space for a client one-on-one, it's energetically rewarding when you help a client. And and I think one of the issues will be going forward is, can can I, me personally or other clinicians, can we achieve that same energetic connection with our clients over the internet? I'm not 100% sure we can. I'm not 100% sure we can't. You were talking about some pretty interesting technology that yeah. might allow us, if we can gauge the other person's emotions using technology, can we actually get some of that energy technologically? I don't know. Yeah. Um, so another thing from my lab, just FYI, is um, something on haptics in which you can touch through the internet. 
so if I tap you on the shoulder, good job, I can shake hands with you. Yeah. Um, so you have to wear a haptic jacket, which has these sensors. Yes. So let's say if you if you if you through gesture tap like on the screen, yeah, the thing will take all the the gesture and make me feel the tap. Yeah. And that was researched maybe uh, say ten years ago from now. Yeah. Uh, by my supervisor, Professor El Sadiq. Uh, but that kind of technology needs uh, 5G to scale. And 5G will start rolling out. Like Canada still hasn't decided what's its position in a scaled way. Yeah. But uh, so that once that starts scaling out, then there has to be mass manufacturing of those kind of jackets. Because yeah. one thing that clearly comes out, you're saying with COVID or both, even in, 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 in war or... In, is lack of touch like i lived in afghanistan and i can tell you i never shook anybody's hand no no and it's culturally not done uh, and now in covid i have i have family members not my family members i have friends telling me that they deliver food to their family members you know older family members and their yeah. parents want to just hug their child and they can't and 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 i understand like so yeah. haptics is one, I'm not saying it's the solution. It's a partial solution. Nothing can replace human life, right? No. Otherwise we could just be robots like, you know, and, and just become one with in, in uh, tech. But I think apart from this adoption, I think there's still a driver for change. And what do you think would drive the adoption of this technology? We know the limitations, but in spite of that, what do you think could be a good driver? Because technology still has the capacity to reach people who haven't uh, who haven't access just because they live too far or they're too shy or for whatever reasons that they can't approach well so what and i think i think you've hit the nail on the head yeah. one of the drivers will be is again with with specifically with what i do yeah. our intervention is so fast compared to other interventions yeah. if you're doing cognitive behavioral therapy you'll do six yeah. to 12 months of therapy yeah. for long exposure long term we're you know you're, you're with me two and a half weeks yeah. And then, and then I check in eight weeks later. So speed and then being able to connect with a clinician anywhere in the world, like we're doing right now. So yep. access, you think about first nation communities that are heavily yep. traumatized and now a person living in Matheson, Ontario, or some even more remote can the ring of fire can access somebody like me. Perfect. And then I think one of the biggest drivers will be is when we fully grasp the impact of trauma. When we fully grasp, yeah. there, are, there are at least 10 comorbid diseases that come yeah. after being traumatized. There's yeah. a body of knowledge that started to emerge in the late 80s, Dr. Norman Cousins, talking about uh, highly negative emotional events coming before the advent of ca cancer, sort of 24 yeah. to 36 before, months before. And so when we start to see trauma for the impact it has on the society, on, on people's lives, the quality of life, and economically. Unfortunately, a lot of times to get the machine moving, you need an e economic impact. When we see you know, young police officers taking their life, mm -hmm. when we see the doctor in New York taking her life, mm -hmm. um, and, and to know that you could overcome trauma, mm -hmm. you don't have to live with it, right? It, it, I think we'll, some of the biggest drivers will be just being able to put up her hand saying, I'm not feeling right. I don't have a mental problem. I'm just not feeling right. Can I go get, can I go have an hour and just get that stuff cleared? I think the, the stigma has to be removed. I think we have to acknowledge that, you know, so many of us are traumatized and, and allow the opportunity to heal. And yeah. using technology will accelerate that a hundredfold 
Yeah, I think with Her 4.0, one thing that we are doing is we're building a community of practice, which acts as a platform for knowledge sharing. Yes. Because so far in health or in digital health, uh, at least I haven't seen, I'm sure they, are, they exist. It's just, I'm not quite aware yeah. uh, where you can talk to these different aspects of a technology aspect of a product aspect of a service aspect because when you give a service it's it's all of these people who are going to work together to give that last mile delivery to that person and uh having said that uh, that we are looking at a community of service um and we've heard your vision and challenges we want to share with our listeners that uh, we have a health 4.0 summit this year in june and Alan, what are your views on the summit? Like, what are your expectations? Of well, I think I think bringing that community together. Now, unfortunately, we're going to have to bring them together virtually. Yeah. But it seems to be in the spirit of Health 4.0, doesn't it? To to uh, to come in virtually. I, I think. I think that part of the message that Health 4.0 gives is that the system we have today, the medical system, is brilliant. It it helps solve so many issues. But concurrently, as individuals, as, as human beings, we've given up much of our health to the healthcare system. Exactly. We need to dilute those boundaries and give the power back to our own bodies and our own lives, which are, have healing capacities. Right? Correct. Correct. And, and um, I think that's such a powerful message. And I think technology can help mm-hmm. us do that. And we see that in, in all sorts of ways from online meditation, yoga courses, yeah. exercises courses, where people literally in the, in the comfort of their bedroom are taking initiatives to take control of some of their bodily functions. Meditation is being shown to, to reverse a lot of diseases. Um, there are a lot of, lot of chronic pain that uh, comes from an injury, a physical injury that's long since physically healed and yet the person still has chronic pain is because yeah. of an emotional trauma. Yes. Right. And so you can literally take, you could take control of that. And so, you know, if you look at the chronic pain industry, you know, people who are, uh, you know, who have a long time pain and they're on pain meds and they, they see their doctor every three months because they believe the system, they're giving up their health to the system. Yeah. And I, I think, um, you know, at a summit like the Health 4.0, that's a great place to share that information with people like yourself who are leading thinkers, that you're out on the edge with a lab doing research, right? Mm-hmm. You know, we, and, and this has to all come together in sentient ways such that the population feels confident with mm-hmm. the information, starts taking action. And more and more people are taking action every day. We know that, right? Yeah. Every, yeah. And Yoga, what- nutrition, meditation. Absolutely. And that's why I think for Health 4.0, if, if you go and check out my LinkedIn, I have written, we need to get over health for all. We've figured it, they're not giving it. We need to be all for health. Yes. You know? And that's the tagline that through my podcasting, I figured that that's the perfect tagline for Health 4.0, which is basically putting citizen in the center, not a patient, a citizen. We are a person Correct. who lives in a society. And um, thank you, Alan, for this wonderful and very touching discussion. I could empathize a lot with what you said. And um, I'm so grateful for us having this recording. And uh, if you want to know more about Alan, Alan, can you give your coordinates to our listeners? Absolutely. So um, if you want to uh, look us up, it's inspiredoutcomes.ca. And at the top of the homepage, there's two links. 
If you have an issue you just want to talk about, there's a link to myself or my wife. It's a, a complimentary 30-minute session. The second link on that site is a, a link to our twice-weekly podcast where we go live and just discuss issues that people are facing during COVID. But uh, that's the best way at inspiredoutcomes.ca. And if you want to email me, it's just alan, A-L-L-E-N, at inspiredoutcomes.ca. And uh, yeah, we're always here to talk to people about what they're going through and to, uh, if we can't help them, to refer them to the right resource. I think that's equally as important. Awesome. And to our listeners who are interested in Health 4.0 Summit, you can find us on www.health4numeric4.tech. Thank you, Alan. This was wonderful. Thank you so much for inviting me. And, and uh, that was a wonderful conversation. Thank you. Thank you.